I'm really pumping them out. I'm winding up on the mound. Man, motherfuck all that cloud. I need like 200,000. I wear my joggers to work. I just re upped on the merch. I pay my rent on the first. They make it back by the third. I look my wife in the face. She got the code to save. Cause just in case I don't make it back, I want her to be straight and get like half to my mama. Make sure you tell her I love her. I'm sure she know it by now, but I can't thank her enough. Welcome back to Block Channel. We're back for episode 62 uh, on this season, season bull run, as we're going through having discussions with everyone building really awesome things to sort of like help push the general technical community along and help improve technical sentiment, especially after this long bear market period. So whether we're talking about the general like speculative nature of the markets, as we did with Ari Paul, or talking about cool connectivity and technologies like Wallet Connect, um, you know, 2.0 Beacon Chains was when we spoke to Dean. We're really lucky today to get on Vinay Gupta, uh, one of the original creators of Ethereum, who's now moved on to create Materium. Really awesome name. Um, and disclaimer, uh, myself through my fundamentum, we were also an investor into this, this man's project. You know, hold a lot of conviction there. So we're great to have a have a chance to like have a conversation with him here on the show and to really sort of like showcase what it is he's working on. Um, so that said, before we get into that interview, um, I have Dr. Corey Petty here with me to help me ask the right questions today. Uh, Corey, you want to introduce yourself to the audience for number 62? What's up, everybody? Dr. Corey Petty here. Uh, recently had a conversation with Vinay uh, a couple of weeks ago on Hashing It Out, where we dove into um, some of the reasons why Materium exists. And I, I'm excited to kind of get into the details of Ethereum, uh, sorry, Materium uh, for this episode. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So yeah, that said, uh, that reminds me, you know, if, if, if you want to, please go to the bitcoinpodcast.com or also the Bitcoin podcast uh, on Spotify, etc. You can find uh, Corey's show hashing it out and you can find that episode with Vinay. With also, if you, if you weren't unaware, our show is now, um, you know, syndicated to Spotify too. So, you know, if you're a Spotify user, make sure you follow us so you can kind of, you know, get a notification as whenever we get new episodes out straight to you. Um, so, of course, let's sort of just like dive into here. And so, you know, as I said, we're, today we're joined by Vinay Gupta, um, founder of, and one of the founders, excuse me, of Materium. And, but before we get into what that is, uh, Vinay, could you just sort of give our audience of like really awesome listeners just a background on like who you are, kind of like your pedigree and how you fell into the crypto space, and then we'll discuss more about what it is you're building. Yeah, sure. Uh, good to see you again, guys. So, um, yeah, I mean, I... A really kind of a relic, right? Uh, so I'm 48 years old. My first exposure to public key crypto was 93. Uh, back in the days when it was all about, you know, PGP and uh, email encryption, all the rest of this stuff, right? Um, and right from the beginning, I knew that this was going to define like huge tracks of the future of the world. You know, secrets and lies have always been the heart of power. And, you know, the notion that ordinary people were going to be able to use government-proof encryption. Now, even in those days, you could see just these huge storm clouds gathering in the horizon, like, okay, something huge is coming. And I've basically spent my life going in and out of the crypto space, waiting for it to go boom, right? Um, so in the late 90s, I got involved pretty tightly with the eGold community, uh, eGold was a digital currency that ran on top of a $120 million gold reserve, and your accounts uh, were denominated in grams of gold. So it was like 
you know, 38 grams of gold, that would pay your rent for, you know, whatever it would be, a month and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 9-11, I kind of looked around the ecosystem and was like, this is not the right place to be. Went into energy policy, did a little bit of um, consulting on crypto stuff for DOD in the middle of that, but basically stayed out in the field really until Ethereum came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Ethereum thing was like, you know, smart contracts had always been the high watermark, right? That you'd seen wave after wave after wave of the crypto revolution, and we'd never gotten over the high watermark wall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we'd never gotten a smart contract platform that worked. And then it was like, okay, they're doing smart contracts. I need to get back on the ship. Um, so I joined Ethereum and wound up project managing the release. So, you know, I named like Frontier and all the rest of that kind of stuff, laid out the roadmap, communicated the roadmap, got everybody through the roadmap, um, you know, did a fair amount of just holding the internal conflict down to a manageable level. That's probably the actually important thing that I did. Um, and it was rambunctious, you know? You had a bunch of nerds who, you know, knew that they were... <laughs> can only imagine. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I came on almost a year after the Gang of Eight actually started the show, right? Uh, I was probably, I don't know, maybe the 10th non-technical employee. We probably had 30 or 40 people on deck by the time I showed up. And the stories about the insanity of the first year that used to circulate, I still don't even know if half of that stuff was true. <laughs> but it was, oh, they'd been so much drama. Um, and, yeah, so I did, you know, I stuck around at the foundation for about a year after the launch. Then I went to Consensus for a year. Um, but consensus at the time weren't up for opening a London office and I kind of wanted to build a team. Um, so I spent about six months trying to get a VC off the ground, um, thought a lot about the structure of capital as it applies to these things. And then the ICO thing exploded. And I just looked around and was like, you know, we are not the people to run a first fund in yeah. an environment <laughs> where all the prices have gone crazy, right? <laughs> you know, we're... We're real good at figuring out what technology is sensible, and we're really good at, you know, like, we've got great analysis, but it's going to make no difference at all because the volatility and the pricing is going to wipe out our edge. We're just mm-hmm. not the people to do this. This is a trader's market, and, you know, we're just, we just don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, okay, right, we, we're going to move to the buy side for money rather than the sell side, and we took a whole bunch of work that I've been chipping away at for about four or five years. So, uh, um, the, the whole Ricardian construct um, for how we do like contract enforcement, right, let's build that as a company. Because I'd started working on that stuff when I was at the foundation, right? I maintained that work all the way through consensus. I knew that we were going to need enforceable contracts as part of the Ethereum ecosystem, and I'd been chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at it. I'd gotten back in contact with Ian Gregg, who invented all that stuff probably 2012, 2013. You know, we used to be up at Bitcoin stuff, Um I remember when I first met Ian, you know, we, we sat down after some event and, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, we were talk, talking and I was talking to this crotchety old Australian dude and it was like, oh, and we were telling stories about e-gold and, you know, all the rest of it. I was like, oh, it's really nice to meet you, Ian. And he gives me his card and it says Ian Greg. I'm like, you're Ian Greg? <laughs> to be like, wait, that means something to you? I'm like, you're Ian Greg. I bought DigiGold from you. Like, in, you know, more than 10 years ago, you're the guy that invented all of this. And Ian was just like, this has kind of never happened to me before. Nobody really knows any of this. Like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, you know. OG, I got you guys are OGs, man. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, in, you know, in that day, 
I was just some kid running around kind of fanboying on the technology. Ian was building mm-hmm. systems. And it's quite weird now that Ian and I are kind of, you know, like we're kind of looking at each other on the level now. Whereas, you know, in 99, it was like, oh my God, the Ian Greg who changed the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, actually, funny enough, it did grow up. <laughs> weird how it happens. So, um, I mean, obviously, it's been a, a, a personal journey. I mean, as you got through this and kind of went through this, this, exploration of just what cryptography plus like digital money could bring as we went through the you know the dot-com boom and i'm sure you were just excited and you went through periods of disillusionment aside from like smart contracts and things like that that kind of like got you like jazz about ethereum you know what what draws you still to kind of like the space like what 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 is the last piece of the puzzle here that you think is uh, not uh, not complete? Is is it what you're working on in Ethereum? And if so, like maybe, maybe we start kind of just talking about that. All right. So my perspective on this is that, and you know, I'll be I'll be flat out blunt here, mm-hmm. is that cryptocurrency is not very important. Mm-hmm. The internet is really really important, right? The internet mm-hmm. as a process is absolutely gigantic and all-encompassing but the cryptocurrency game is like one percent or two percent of the mass of the internet you know the real story here is the penetration of the internet deeper and deeper into structures it hit finance and that gave us things like bitcoin um but the thing that i'm interested in is not pushing the kind of bitcoin paradigm further and fractally out further into reality which is kind of where we are with scaling and uh you know things like ethereum and you know contract management and all the rest of that i'm not interested in that vector what i'm interested in is backing out a little and then going down the track of pushing the internet into the real world so for me the crypto is a tool for making something that looks like internet of things work mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know what what i'm trying to get to is a point where we begin to extend the capabilities we have in relation to physical matter so we get things like matter search Right, so we get fluidity of an interface with the material world that we're used to for digital, but we never see for physical stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you think of like the difference between renting a car and calling an Uber, you know that's what that fluidity looks like. Got it. It's mm-hmm. just this ability to reach out into the world with your digital stuff and cause the world to orchestrate itself in the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that sounds a little sort of speculous. But it's also like the practical work examples of things like the Apple supply chain or the Walmart supply chain, where they've pushed the digital and the physical so deeply in, in interpenetration that there's almost no slippage between the material and the digital. So they can do incredibly efficient financing. They can do incredibly efficient delivery. They can push prices down. You know, they've really got a huge precision in their ability to work with systems. Um, and I want to see that for everything. I want that to be the default state of matter. When it comes to the technology behind Materium, where was the breakthrough? Aha! Obviously, clearly, you know, blending the material world with the digital world, and you know, you know, cryptographic ownership and things like that is like, you know, that's the goal here. But where was the aha moment in the construction of all this? You know, you've mentioned Ricardian contracts, etc., things of that nature, but where was it where you were like, this is what we need and this is how Materium will function in relation to real-world contracts and bridging those with an on-chain activity? Yeah. So for me, uh, the 
the core of construct, the thing that I was using as the lever, was mm -hmm. a thing called transdisciplinary research, right? Mm -hmm. So transdisciplinary research is this idea that the kind of fruitful, productive fractal edge is like seashore, right? You've got two different liquids, you, you know, you've got two different medium, you've got land over here and sea over there, and it's that kind of fractal edge that is where all the creative stuff happened. So Materium started as an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary research group because we pulled together the legal, we pulled together the technical, we did it in a way where we had an ability to get super deep into both simultaneously. Uh, and then after we built that machinery, the breakthroughs have been probably roughly two or three a year, probably every four or five, six months, we'll mm -hmm. have another like, step up as we move forward. So you know, when we figured out that it was not about dispute resolution, it was dispute avoidance, there was a whole reorganization of how we saw the world. Um, there was another reorganization when we realized that you could take a whole bunch of concepts from digital identity and apply it to physical things. So self-sovereign identity for objects rather than for people. Um, but it has been this kind of, you know, just you put another pit on in the wall and then you weaver yourself up and then you put another pit on in the wall and then you weaver yourself up. It's very, very stepwise. It isn't that we turned around one day and we're like, oh my God, we know how to do everything. It's actually been quite, you know, incremental and measured. You mentioned something earlier on and you gave it, a, you gave an analogy of kind of what you're trying to do here. And you said, like, try to imagine renting a car, but the difference between renting a car and getting an Uber. What you're trying to do is move that experience of uh, physical items from renting a car to getting an Uber, whatever that means. You're lowering the barrier of entry for people to do that type of thing or have the world orchestrate itself in such a way where things are more fluid. Now, like I would say the entire ecosystem is relatively early, even in just the cryptocurrency point of view. How long until like do, like you have a roadmap in terms of like how you get to this and the time it takes to actually get there? So the crux of this is that we're already doing it inside walled garden ecologies. So the world is filled with places where they've gone for almost complete interpenetration between the digital and the physical. They just give it names like just-in-time manufacturing, or they give it names like mass customization, or they give it names like supply chain management. What's missing is the vision that you could take those systems out of the walled gardens and do them at internet scale. Um, so, you know, it's not that there isn't a deep body of expertise, but it's very siloed and it's very compartmentalized. But those are the places that we're looking in terms of long-term inspiration. That's the way we see it. In the short run, we're going for, uh, frankly, just high traction, easy to do stuff. Um, mm -hmm. The first customer is uh, our, our Lord and Savior, William Shatner, the guy who played Captain Kirk <laughs> Uh, Our Lord and Savior. Know, I like that. I feel bad. I feel bad because I'm like probably the only guy here that's never seen an episode of Star Trek in his life. You should feel <laughs> bad. I'm, I'm gonna shame myself and I'll maybe watch a clip after the show. <laughs> How do you survive? How do you know I, what kind of a world like, it is? I like I like books and whatever's going on in my head, man. I don't know. <laughs> there there are Star Trek books. You could read about it if you want to, but like, well, I wouldn't be able to see William Shatner's chisel jaw you know what i'm saying like I, i'm sure that's part of the whole appeal you know and the whole crux of what is that space nerddom so I, I've, I've seen him just be ecstatic about what you guys are building so i'm sure it must be good yeah look space nerddom i mean that's where it's at right there's a, le a reason that everybody that makes 
you know, more than a billion dollars in Silicon Valley winds up building spaceships, right? You know, like, you know, Star Trek is the state religion of the geeks. It's it's just soaked into our DNA. And it's the most, you know, utopian thing you ever saw. It's like, you know, Western liberalism in space. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is happy. You know, when they go to war, they're not like remotely genocidal. They're really fairly polite about it. You know, it's it's quite. It's gotten. You know, it's it's one of the few. You know, kind of mass uh, understood, deeply soaked in utopian projects there is. You know, it's incredibly important in terms of like helping nerds find their moral compass, um, because without it, you know, we would have basically nothing but cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, it might be a relic of the '60s, but man, it's the relic of the '60s that has put us on the track back to space. No Star Trek, mm-hmm. no Elon Musk, no Bezos. You know, none of that stuff exists without Star Trek as the catalyst. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's weirdly important in ways that you don't really realize until you imagine what would you be like if it had never existed. So, how in the um, world did you get William Shatner on board, and how was he in, in, like a part of it? I want to know too. I want to know too. As an investor, I want to know too. <laughs> <laughs> right. What one does not get William Shatner. What happens is that William Shatner gets you. <laughs> well played. So some somebody had put, a, put you know Shatner was very interested in blockchain stuff, and somebody put him on to a talk that I did uh, a few years ago with a guy called Michelle Balans, um, peer to peer foundation guy, and I did a talk that basically said, look, what you got to understand is that we look at science fiction when we're children. And then we grow up into engineers, and then we go and build the things that were dreams when we were kids. And that's where you got your cell phone, and it's where you got your self-driving car, and it's where you got your robots, and it's where you got your internet, and it's where you got your spaceships. You know, it all comes from young nerdlings looking at some vision of the future in a story and saying, "I will build that when I grow up." Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody had shown this video to Shatner, and Shatner was like, "Okay, that's our guy, right? He gets the science fiction thing. That's our guy." And we had conversations off and on on Twitter for about maybe a year. And then finally it came together with Paul Camuso, who has been working with William Shatner for, I don't know, maybe three decades. Um, And Paul used to be uh, an IBM guy. I think he was heavily involved in Lotus Notes. So he understands technology. He kind of knows his way around getting things done in the tech space. Um, And so we set up, you know, a project and here we are. Uh, it's called Third Millennium. And the, the Third Millennium thing is basically going after, you know, kind of what you think of as being celebrity objects, right? Film stars, you know, uh, sports stuff, um, you know, high-end merchandise, manufacturing of, you know, unique things. You know, it, it's, it's very much the kind of charismatic megafauna space that they want to go into. It's all the big shiny things. Um, because that's where they've got enormous amounts of reach and savvy because they've been dealing with that world and all the merchandising around it for decades. Um, and that is, I mean, that's a multi, multi-billion dollar set of industries. Just like, I mean, think of Fortnite. Fortnite sold a billion dollars worth of skins. I don't know what's been spent on Magic the Gathering cards in the last 20 years, but it's probably like 14 figures. Um, sports merchandise is gigantic. So there's enough there that we can do few enough transactions that we don't break Ethereum for large enough values that it's commercially meaningful. 
inside of a relatively simple legal paradigm compared to something like real estate in areas where we probably only need to make it work under American law because that's where 70% of the market is globally. So that's our kind of starting point. That's where we're building our little campfire initially. Uh, and then once we've got that running well and good, um, then we can start going kind of bonfire where we start moving out into uh, doing stuff which will then be securitized probably by other people. So we would do the custodial, they would do securitization um, or possibly into supply chain, just depending on order of precedence. Um, Ethereum transaction fees are still relatively high. We're hoping to avoid having to do anything on a permission network. Like if we, if we wind up getting choked by transaction fees, we're going to wind up using somebody's proof of authority Ethereum fork, but I would rather not do that. I'd rather stay on main chain. So that kind of puts a floor on the value of objects we can work with initially. But you, you get a sense of the kind of the seam that we're mining here. That's the that's the direction of travel. So on a on a on a, on a on a level that you think is most sensible here, wouldn't necessarily say a high level because I want some detail here. Um, but walk me through, uh, you know, kind of kind of this procedure. Say I've got a, a mint Star Trek collectible new inbox. Um, this is an item that is precious to me. Um, you know, I want to make I want to create the equivalent of its digital twin on chain on Ethereum. What walk me through what that process would look like and where Materium would come into play here, just for anyone who maybe at this point doesn't quite understand how this might all function. Okay, so the, what we've got to do initially is we've got to generate an identity for your object, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's our first question is, what is it? So unfortunately, we don't have any kind of efficient automated way of identifying things. Um, you take your object, you tell me over this uh, call, you know, okay, this thing is a new inbox, mint Star Trek figure, it's from 1978, and it was part of this production run. Uh, and, you know, here are a couple of sold on eBay recently for, you know, 12 grand each or whatever it is. Um, and I look at that and go, you know, you send me some pictures, I go, ooh, that's really impressive. I don't know enough about it to make a decision, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an expertise gap. We, we have a saying in Materium, all markets are lemon markets. So you understand way more about your object than I do. So when you try and sell it to me, I have to either know as much about it as you do or I can't safely buy it. So that, that imbalance between buyer and seller understanding of the situation is why we're so much into brands and trust and centralization of trust. It's a social mechanism that drives centralization. So what you're going to do is you're going to go out, you're going to get some third parties that I trust to verify what the object is. So you're going to take it to some dealers or you're going to take it to some experts or you know some toy historians and they will give you a written opinion on what that object is and you will pay them money for that opinion right so yep. you take the dealer and you say right so you tell me what this thing is and i am gonna pay you you know uh, 50 bucks for that opinion and the right to legally rely on that opinion as fact up to say twenty thousand dollars consequential losses mm -hmm. so it's like insurance model right what we're doing here is we're basically insuring the oracles got it so if you're thinking of this in a native blockchain way what we're doing is we're paying people to the oracles but we're making sure the oracles stay honest by making them stake but because most of the people that are going to be in this system are not going to have large piles of crypto they're going to stake with they're going to stake with insurance contracts which will be backed by insurers. 
So we only need to trust the insurers, and those guys are relying on their insurers to give them the ability to do it, or they can stake their own assets. And in different markets, you're going to get hold of that underlying value for the staking mechanisms in different ways. If they're all crypto people, you can use escrow. If they're not crypto people, you're going to use contract law, and you're going to make sure it's enforceable. Those You see how it's kind of a diversified approach to mm -hmm. get those insured oracles into play? So that's the that's the guts of the machinery is these oracle networks which give you very strong certitude about what the object is. Then so does, I, so, does, so does Materium in this in this realm are they playing kind of uh, kind of like the legal intermediary trying to dictate you know whom or where you're going to get that authority and insurance from and then from there you guys facilitate the on-chain mechanism. So in that sort of model, think of those guys as being buyers and sellers for a product which is this kind of a certified Oracle, mm -hmm. right? So we provide a platform on which this Oracle activity occurs. You uh, want to sell Oracle services, you want to buy Oracle services. We match buyers and sellers for this kind of certified Oracle thing. Mm. Make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So now, uh, initially uh, we're going to be hand building those little networks. Like, you know, the, the infamous Stradivarius violin deal, it's a network of violin dealers that are going to be providing the kind of opinions in those systems. And we yeah, have to build exactly. those things kind of manually at first because those people don't really know how the technology works. They're going to need some handholding. There's a question of how you get over the initial trust barrier. All of that we have to do. But on the other side of it, you've got a new social structure, which is these collectives of people that cross-certify each other's claims. Ah, that makes perfect sense. So basically, building a, a network, a legal, a legal network of both like insurance and, and attestations that dictate that this item is what it says it is. Multiple entities know that this is the item that it says it is and attest to that. And then so that provenance is carried with that asset, uh, and then that is all mapped to an on-chain contract or token. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying, right? Now. Yep. How much of that you can do on chain depends on who you're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're dealing with relatively conservative institutions, a lot of them are just going to deal with this as paper contracts, which are accessed on chain, but if they're ever enforced, it will be in a regular court or it'll be in an arbitration court. Yep. As we move into areas where people are more technical, now you can talk about escrow and crypto or using other mechanisms for crypto recoverability. So this is one of these things where right now it's going to be kind of manual at first, but the mechanisms are clearly implementable. Uh, do you know a company called Vouch for Me? Uh, I haven't, but I will Google it while you explain what it is to the audience. So Vouch for Me are mates of ours. We helped them out a bit in the early days um, when they were so-called InsurePal. And InsurePal is a network, or sorry, Vouch for Me is a network escrow machine. So if you say that you're going to pay me $50 and if you don't, your five friends will pay me $50 and the $10 each, then I don't, I'm not just trusting you. I'm trusting you or your five friends. So there are already people who are building these kind of network escrow models and they are also very close to the insurers. So you can sort of see that there's an ecology here building up where, you know, Materium has some little networks that vouch for people, and they have some networks that vouch for people, and slowly you begin to build this interoperable system where we don't trust an individual's claim that something is so. We trust the money which backs their claim, 
in the form of these networks of indemnifications. And that is building a real trust structure that has the ability to build the the bridge the gap between the physical and the digital. That's how we get across the chasm between the physical world and the digital world, is we fill that gap with these indemnified trust networks, and that's the framework into which you slot all your Internet of Things stuff. Because the more you can monitor, the less your insurance cost is. But if we don't build that bridge between the physical and the digital, we're stuck in a position where we can't get to all the good stuff like matter search. You know, it has to be rooted in trust. I would definitely agree with that in terms of uh, like the foundational layer. What I'm curious about now is like once you have this, say you can say you can achieve this appropriately. Once you have it. There's a lot that is, it seems to be like available after that. What are you What are you excited about? Or at least like what are the first steps in terms of doing something once you have that foundation? So there's a really pretty substantial business to be built in areas which are, let's say, politically unambitious, right? If we did sports memorabilia and you know all the kinds of stuff that you would see in a place like Comic Con. You could build a pretty decent business in that space, and it would be, you know, potentially commercially lucrative, and it'd all be fab, and our investors would be very happy. Um, but unfortunately, I have profound political concerns about the state of the world right now. As we're having this conversation, you know, the Amazon rainforest is on fire in a really dramatic way, which is not a thing that rainforests are supposed to do. Nope. Um, nope. And you know, it's one of about thirty things that are on fire in the world. The smoke is so bad that in the middle of the day in Sao Paulo, the sky is black. You know, it's it's really horrific. And, you know, I spent 14 years really driving towards being able to build and deploy global capacity for handling hundreds of millions of climate refugees. You know, the whole hex here and the simple critical infrastructure maps and all the stuff that I did at StarTides, all of those things are parts of a long-term model for trying to m- mitigate the awful impact that we're having on the planet particularly the humanitarian impact. So what I really want to do is I really want to go after carbon, right? So I I wanted to make it possible to take a manufactured object and say, okay, how much carbon is in this thing? And did anybody plant trees to offset it? So, you know, you want to sell me a car, and I know that that car has like 200,000 tons of carbon potential in it, you know, like, is that going to be offset? Is my gasoline going to offset the carbon? I had a conversation with some people at a large oil company about, you know, what it would take for them to actually buy carbon offsets for their oil to prove that for every barrel of oil, they had bought enough carbon offsets to cover the oil, right? How many trees do you have to plant to manage a barrel of oil and how much does it cost? Turns out to be about under 5% of the cost of the oil. So we could build a model in which we basically voluntarily or even uh, government-enforced tax on the manufacture of physical objects, where at some point in the chain, somebody has to buy enough tree planting and you know insulating buildings and so on. You have to buy enough carbon offsets to cover the damage that you've done to the world by making this. Um, and that's just more certifications, right? I show the manufactured object to an expert, the expert mm-hmm. gives me a certificate that says, I reckon that's 50 tons of carbon, right? I then go to a second company and I buy 50 tons of carbon credits. 
and I put that on chain as well, and now I've got a carbon neutral object. This mm. thing did not make the world worse, at least in the global warming sense, by its manufacturing, right? And yeah, so at I least, so at least there's some form of like digital accountability with everything we do economically with each other. And if we don't demonstrate the capability to do that, it's never going to get mandated, mm. right? So yeah, these, are, these are big ideas, man. Big ideas. Uh, well, thank you, right? But I mean, this is not original stuff. We've been working on triple bottom line accounting for thirty freaking years, right? Mm -hmm. And once you've got a blockchain that's capable of handling multi-dimensional transactions, you know, you pay me in Dai, and I send you back, you know, an ERC seven twenty type individual passport thing. And I also send you all the carbon that came along for the ride with that. That's easy to do with a blockchain smart contract. It's not easy to do if you're using Visa or Swift to make your payments. So what I want is a bi-directional economy where every time you buy something, you know, you send the money, but they also send you back the carbon and any potential exposure from modern slavery. And you know, it's using these alloys which were taken from a potentially contaminating source. You know, I want to see a position where we don't just send the money in one direction, take the goods, and then all the externalities are invisible. I want to get hold of the externalities. And one of the critical things here is that we can do this with third parties. So you want to sell me a thing. I get a third party to assess the thing and tell me the externalities. Then I figure out what I'm going to buy to offset them. And I demonstrate that I've done all this so that my shareholders or you know the people that I'm accountable to look at what I've done and see that we are in fact carbon offsetting. We are in fact not part of the problem. So buyer can do it, seller can do it, third parties can do it. What we're creating is a market for truth, which will back a culture of truth. We have to know where the damage is being done so that we can stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When's it going to happen? When, how, like, when? I want to know, I want to know when I can get I can start to like get my hands on these things, or like, yeah. or even play on something on an experimental test net or anything like that. What's what's what are you guys' kind of like plot as far as like releases? So I was expecting to have this stood up now, right? I was I was expecting to have something up and running on uh, the Ethereum test net now. Um, we hit some snags and life got a little complicated. We're probably a month behind schedule. We're making up time pretty quickly. So I am um, now you never want to obligate yourself because there's always so right? But of course, just put a just put an asterisk at the end. Don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it this way, right? Um I'd hope to get a bunch of stuff out and into the wild by Burning Man. And uh, I'm not gonna be on the playa this year, I'm gonna be at home working on shit. Um I think that we will have actual commercial services on mainnet by american thanksgiving and probably alphas that people can have a poke around with a month from now maybe a little bit less it's a little it's a little delicate we, you know we're kind of pushing it backwards and forwards but that's kind of where we are oh, um yeah. it's i mean it's very because the reason we're so delicate about this is it's the coordination of the legal and the technical, which is the delicate part. So trying to audit a system which has both legal and technical components is like seriously non-trivial. Um, so, so, so through this process, um, trying to build 
something obviously with so many different moving parts, such a such a grandstanding sort of like vision. What has been the most difficult aspect of this, whether it is interpersonal relations, whether it is just the general tech, the validation of what will actually work? What what is something that uh, an outsider, entrepreneur, speculator, et cetera, looking in could learn from this process that you've been going through trying to build material? All right. So the sad news here is that the transdisciplinary approach didn't work once we headed towards production, right? Transdisciplinarity, where you build a really, really egalitarian, equal, you know, deeply insightful internal culture is phenomenal for doing research because it's how you get the shared understanding between the legal, the technical, the operational, the commercial. It's how you get all these pieces mixed together into a story. When you start actually moving towards shipping product, unfortunately, you wind up with the commercial imperative comes first. And it's like, okay, now we're going to go and we're going to sell the product. So when you start having to pull people back towards that focused goal, the same egalitarian culture that allows you to understand the world deeply enough to form these complex new models of reality and then begin to implement them begins to break because the skills for actually getting commercial production done are much more hamster wheel, right? The people that are really good at getting product done go around the, you know, observe, orient, decide, act loop. You know, they turn the hamster wheel of decision and action super, 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 super quickly. And they're always turning the hamster wheel. And they often don't have look ahead and they're often not very strategically aware. And they often, if they succeed large, do it largely by chance. They luck into something that a lot of people want and then they just keep peddling. They're not very strategic in a lot of cases. Um, but it turns out that most of the business is not strategy, right? Strategy is largely how you identify opportunities, but execution is king. And egalitarian transdisciplinary structures turn out to suck for execution. And to be honest, I knew that, right? I had it, you know, at the uh, Ethereum Foundation. I had it at consensus. And I really told myself, you know, we've got great people. This time it will be different. And it wasn't, right? So a lot of the, you know, kind of ruction and delay that we've had is we got pretty close technically, like we're just about ready to go. And then as we got further into the commercial mindset of build and ship, build and ship, build and ship, build and ship, you know, turning the team around into that new configuration has put a lot of drag on us. So, yeah. you know, my takeaway from that is that we really need to think much better about how to establish pure research institutions inside mm -hmm. of the blockchain space that have efficient handoff to implementation teams that are commercial. Because mm -hmm. the fusion of the, you know, trying, trying to build a research institution that would commercialize the research while the shifting of gears was an enormous painful grind. Whereas if I'd stayed inside of, let's say, Ethereum Foundation, been paid as a researcher, built all of these models out and then handed them off to commercialization experts, you know, we wouldn't have had to go through that gear shift. We would have had research track and we would have had commercialization track and we wouldn't have had this, you know, kind of agonizing process of having to change the hats after the organizational culture was set. Um, so of, I think there's a lot was, of wisdom there, I think, man, it was expensive to get that wisdom. It really, <laughs> if I had been able to tell myself that story two years ago, right. I, I would have literally split the research arm from the commercialization arm. It would have been two separate enterprises with two separate leaders from the very beginning. Um, 
because that split that you see between academia and the real world it just turns out there are really sound reasons for that split to be there which makes me sad i don't want that to be true but you know i tried it you know i, I saw it play out at the foundation i saw it play out at consensus i thought i could do better and i could not uh, so that's put me back into a much more conventional way of getting things done and it's not what I'd hoped for in terms of changing the world by culture, but it is going to change the world by product, and that's life. Yeah, man, man, man. There's, there's a lot of difference. There's a lot of big difference between the vision and kind of the creative process of coming up with how to implement that vision. And then when now there's money on the line and business on the line to actually like commercialize and to actualize on what it is you were even beginning to work on in the first place, that requires, as you said, two wholly different mind spaces to be in, right? Someone who is focused in on hopping in on a social level, explaining the technical context of what it is you're building, and then finding the appropriate partners that can leverage your technology in a way that everyone previously had envisioned. So when you have a team of you know crackpot awesome people that are here to kind of deliver these ideas, everyone has an internal perspective, especially if communication hasn't always been as concise on where things are going to go when it gets to the implementation phase, and that's really one of the biggest struggles. Of project management 101 is stakeholder management and mm. understanding that every, everyone has to be aligned on not only technically feasibly how it will be done but also when it lands in the hands of a consumer or an enterprise or etc how will that look because nobody wants to take the time to build a baby that will grow up to be you know a, an angry adolescent that is doing something that they never envisioned yeah too true i mean the other thing here is that you know i spent a lot of time in think tanks right and specifically military think tanks or think tanks that were close to like environmental policy but at the sharp end or you know this kind of stuff mm -hmm. um and or you know even the humanitarian world at the kind of thinky end of the humanitarian world in those environments people are really used to thinking about their work as something with life and death consequences like you know if you're working on energy policy stuff and it's going to affect capital allocation between nuclear reactors, solar panels, and you know coal plants. You really feel like if you get this wrong, it's really going to hurt people in the long run. And there's a certain kind of deadly serious intensity in those environments, which, because I spent so much of my career in those environments, is completely natural to me. Like you know, if it's not life or death, um, why am I there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if the world was in a perfectly nice condition and everybody was fed and housed and sheltered and we weren't trashing the planet just by existing, I'd almost certainly be part on my butt somewhere teaching meditation, right? You know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious, man. Yeah. I, I got, you know, the meditation school that I was part of in the 90s basically closed its doors after 9-11 and kicked everybody out to go do something useful with their lives. Like, hey, you know, the, the, the world is on fire and you have to go put it out. Here's a bucket, get out of the house. And... That process for me is still like, how do you put all these high and spiritual ideas into practice? So I tried it in the think tank world, moderately successful, some change. The emphasis of society shifted towards the commercial. So it was like, okay, I'm going to go into the commercial and I'm going to try and live my values in the marketplace. Um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's a constant series of surprises because the marketplace, generally speaking, doesn't have the kind of deadly seriousness that I associate with the kind of work that I used to do. And realizing that there isn't quite that same degree of like 
people just show up and get shit done. You know, like, it, it's just a much more mixed environment. People have all kinds of different motives. Like, you see mm -hmm. this, right? You go to crypto conferences sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, 20% of the people there are serious about global change. 40% are serious about getting rich. 20% and 20% have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Seems like a reasonable, reasonable breakdown, yeah. maybe. <laughs> and, you know, I used to be in a game where, like, people showed up serious. And then they went from serious to like clinical, and that was about the range of personality types that you would get. And if you turned up at the energy policy shop in like 2005, they're just like, "We're doomed. We're totally screwed. We've missed the curve. <laughs> we're heading for like two degrees of warming. We're not going to get any of the political change in time." And we're, we're oh my god! And that was like that was get out of bed level seriousness at Rocky Mountain Institute, right? So I'd been running around with my hair on fire in those kind of shops for like 40 years. Then I came into the crypto world. And the crypto world, it was like, it was all so much more relaxed. And people had such a sense of like, hey, we're great. We're winning. We're going to change the world. And it's only very slowly that people have begun to sober up. Like, we're, we might be going to change the world, but we're not going to change the world fast enough to stop this getting completely screwed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another part of it for me is just like, you know, the... the freaking clinical seriousness with which world change has to be approached these days um i hope the rest of the crypto world sharpens up on that because ah man we've been too free for too long like it's time to really get down you know we need to start tightening bolts here boys yeah that's the name you of the know, episode I, you just named the yeah, episode for that one too free tightening the bolts <laughs> <laughs> well i mean like so thank you for this perspective Vene. i mean obviously clearly we all know that everything that's going on is kind of scary and i mean a lot of us maybe are sort of internalizing everything that's going on and maybe don't want to speak about this evil out loud and speak it into existence and you know we're kind of on the threshold and you know kind of the break inflection point on like two different sides either like complete and total revolution and how everything's are done and a lot's going to change or a perpetual state of dark ages and it went a type of way that i don't really even want to discuss yeah. So I don't know how much you agree with that, um, but that's where my level of pessimism is at. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> so I, I, got, I got to tell you, the way that I think this is going to go is I think that the places where life is bad are going to get worse, and the places where life is good are going to generally get better, right? Um, you know, like, if you've got access to first world medicine, I've got, like, several friends um, who are dealing with either them, they have cancer or their relatives have cancer. And you're, yeah, exactly, right? You're, you're one of the four or five people I know that are going through this right now. But, you know, but my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. And my model of what a cancer diagnosis looks like is based on the stuff that I grew up around. And that's not how it is anymore. Yeah, you know, I've learned that too. It's definitely better. You know, it's like, People have, you know, somebody I know, they, uh, the person they're close to got a genetic test, told them they were, they were like 75% likely to get breast cancer after the age of like 40-something, and they just took care of it. You know? Mm. The early detection, action, no problem, sorted. Um, really, really, really just dramatic, like, you know, stuff, stuff is actually kind of working in a way that it never used to. Um, 
So as long as you've got the resources to get access to that kind of care, life is great. The problem is if you live in some freaking slum and nobody's got the machinery for change there. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there isn't enough money. There is the, the correct culture. You know, people can't go from like, you know, hundreds of years of colonial oppression into the marketplace and become global citizens in two generations. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you just can't get around the corner. The whiplash is so extreme. Um, and that sort of stuff, uh, you know, like literacy, the, the struggle used to be literacy. Okay, you get literacy sorted out. Okay, now you've got to go down and teach business culture. Like, tell us about the cash flow. And that's a whole other thing. Um, a rule of law, good governance, all of that stuff. Cultures that are being run from the top with a sword in the hand never develop that kind of accountability framework. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's, I, I just fear that the places where stuff is bad are going to stay bad and get worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and we just have to try and fight against that as hard as we can. Yeah, well, I'm with you there, Renee. I'm with you on your side trying to like kind of like fight against this current that seems to only continue to get stronger and move oddly keep bumping into whirlpools along the way to drag us a little bit further under, but I still feel as if we still somewhat have our head above water. And, you know, oh, conversations okay. like conversations like these, you know, uh, in, in hopes that others, very intelligent people are listening and kind of understanding the importance of where we're at uh, uh, in history. So, you know, I, I do thank you uh, very much, Vinay, for coming on the show today and, 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 and filling us with your ideals and your vision on how to play a role in helping to fix these things. So, once uh, you know, Materium is is out and about, we've got Stradivarius violins, and we've uh, you know we've tokenized William Shatner. Uh, we want you to come back on, and on how we hope that we're a little bit closer to making all this better. I, I want to leave you with one last reference, which is really super useful, right? So the bottom line is, with solar panels at current prices and dropping there's almost no way that you can't walk out of that with a working society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we are post-scarcity for energy within 10 to 20 years on a scale that people don't understand is coming. It's incredibly radical. So, you know, it's not that there is no hope. It's just the hope isn't very equally distributed. The guy who read on this guy called Ramiz Nam, the, the sci-fi author. Mm-hmm. So he did some really, really serious technical analysis on solar panels uh, the first piece that he had published was called Is There a Moore's Law for Solar, which was in Scientific American. And basically it says, hell yes, there's a Moore's Law for Solar. It drops in price by 50% a decade. Mm. Let's just accelerate that trend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not fighting this alone. The solar guys are over there and the clean meat guys are over here and the, you know, turning lentils into things that people actually want to eat guys are over there. <laughs> <laughs> technologies, and it's not that hard, right? You can solve half of the world's problems by getting human beings to stop eating cows, right? Mm-hmm. Nature springs back because it's no longer economically efficient to cut down jungles. People stop getting heart disease because they're not eating huge amounts of saturated fat packed with freaking hormones. Um, and uh, you hugely reduce the methane emissions from the cows that are causing global warming. You know, it's like we could be less than 10 years from the permanent decline of the cow population and the springing back of nature. It's mm. not that there aren't tech fix-
fixes in play. We just need to get the tech fixes fixed. Get the solar panels up, get rid of the cows, replace them with whatever we're going to replace meat with. You know, we get through these processes, and it's only really four or five big problems, all of which are amenable to technical fixes, except maybe consumerist hyperconsumption. And even that seems to be moving more towards virtual things than physical things. So, yeah, yeah. sorry to keep ranting about this, but... Like, no, no, you make good good insights there, you know, it's, it's, it's moved, like, moved from physical, yeah, moving from physical consumption to, you know, a, a more dependence on digital consumption will obviously yeah. over time lessen our, our direct impact in the real world. And it definitely as far as, insofar as carbon emissions, right? Where do you need to go to the work? Where do you need to go to communicate with individuals and learn and grow? And we can offset a lot of stuff all at once by digitizing it. And you're playing a major role in that. And we That's really not... appreciate your efforts. And it just, you know, it just all looks together, right? If you look at the political story, it's a hundred million problems that are all woven together into this dense, impossible to cut map. But if you look at the technical side of it, it's just like, well, okay, we can make really good beef burgers out of plants now. And it's mm-hmm. way cheaper than real beef, so let's all just switch. And yeah. you do that, and like nature springs back immediately. It doesn't take 20 years to recover, you know, like it stops being a cow pasture and turns into a forest that doesn't take decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that we can't get the ship turned, we just have to get the ship turned. It's not impossible, it's literally half a dozen technologies. And if we just concentrate fire on those targets, we will win. Let's well, do it. Thank you. Let's do it, Vinay. We're, we're in it. We're in it to win it. <laughs> and step one is putting out this episode and, and enlightening more individuals. So again, Vinay, thank you for your time. We'll have you back on in the future. You know, very excited about what you have to you know, bring forward to fruition to the world. And, you know, keep fighting the good fight. And hopefully we'll see you on the other side. Hang in there. All right. Thank you very much. And you have a great day. Double down. I put these boys on the poster. Stand okay with a holster. I'm talking less through the motor. I wake them up like some folders. I won't enlist in no army. Recruit a couple of soldiers. I put a brand on my shoulders. No warranty on the motor. Yeah, yeah. So fuck that shit you talking about. You ain't talking liquid cash and drip the fuck.